the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley, uh, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Quite a mixed bag of a show today, actually. We talked about uh, cats, which obviously I can't stand. Uh, We talked about driverless cars. Uh, We talked about the new NRG, Northern Research Group of Tory MPs, causing trouble for the Prime Minister. Uh, We talked about how uh, Keir Starmer's had an absolute car crash, and this time it wasn't PMQs. He's uh, literally seems to have been a bit of a prang with a cyclist. Uh, not just because he was riding a Boris bike, either, we don't think. Uh, but um, two things I want to bring on the podcast today, a sort of podcast of two halves. Uh, later in the episode, uh, we'll be unpicking the polls with Chris Curtis from YouGov and Deborah Mattinson from Britain Thinks. Really, really interesting stuff about where the public mood is right now, uh, politically, economically, on uh, coronavirus. And in particular... Who does the public trust, Boris Johnson or Chris Whitty, to make the right decisions on uh, coronavirus? But first, um, a really fascinating chat with a really fascinating man, Paul Botang, uh, who was the first black cabinet minister in Britain. Really fascinating story about his uh, upbringing and uh, his views on politics and tackling uh, racial disparities today. Now, it's Black History Month uh, throughout October. It comes to the end uh, this weekend, of course. And throughout October, even on this show, we've tried to shed some light on some amazing stories, including the Welsh boxer who was banned from fighting 100 years ago just because of the colour of his skin, while also shedding light on some of uh, issues today as well, including the impact of coronavirus on non-white communities. Well, today, I'm delighted to be able to talk to someone who made history themselves. In 2002, Paul Botain became Britain's first black cabinet minister albeit 110 years after the first non-white MP was elected. And Paul Botang, now Lord Botang, joins me now. Morning, Paul. Hello, Matt. Great to be with you. 
It's lovely to have you with us on uh, on Times Radio. So we'll, we'll talk politics first, but let's start at the beginning, if you like. Uh, you were born in Hackney in 1951, uh, but you moved to Ghana when you were four. Explain explain your your childhood and upbringing. Yes, I'm a I, I'm a Hackney boy, but my parents uh, met uh, when they were students. Uh, my dad was reading law. My mum was becoming uh, a teacher. My father was from what was then the Gold Coast, now Ghana. Uh, they met, uh, it had me in 1951. And then when my dad had completed his studies and my mum had completed hers, they went back uh, to uh, the Gold Coast, to Ghana. And uh, that's where I was brought up until I was, what, uh, 16? Uh, and we came back then to the, the UK, my mum, my myself and my sister, my dad, who was a lawyer, had become uh, a cabinet minister himself. There had been a military coup. He was flung into prison without trial. And we ended up on a, a council estate in a place called Hemel Hempstead in, in West Hertfordshire. And I went uh, to the local grammar school, went to university, read law. And that's how, that's how my life began. So it, I mean, it was... Uh, that's a hell of a, a story. Yeah, it was a fascinating and uh, challenging life. And I'm, I regard myself as, as hugely lucky lucky to have been brought up uh, in my early years uh, in in Africa, lucky too to have been to a very good uh, grammar school uh, in uh, Hemel Hempstead and still have friends there to this, uh, uh, to this, to this day. But it was a very different time from now. I mean, my, my mom and dad uh, couldn't get anywhere to live when they, when they were first married because they were signs up saying, you know, no dogs, uh, no coloured, no Irish. Um, my people used to come up to my dad in, in in the street in Tottenham and touch his back to see if he had a tail. I mean, you know, that's how it was then. Um, people would, you know, uh, approach my mum and say, "Is he yours?" and touch my hair. I mean, it was a really, it was a very, very different, different time. And then you like, like you. I mean, it's extraordinary that. And I mean, people. I suppose we we hear quite a lot about what it was, what it's been like from uh, people in the public eye now, growing up as young and black in major cities. Whether you know, obviously, there's a lot of focus on London. We've talked a lot in the past about Bristol and uh, the experience there. Uh, but Hemel Hempstead is a sort of you know, is a town in Hertfordshire. It's a sort of slightly different yeah. thing. So, what 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 was your experience like in a, in a sort of small small well. <laughs> English town? Well, Matt, I, I was very lucky, as I say. I had great teachers, great schoolmates, uh, and uh, was very fortunate in that respect. But having said that, I mean, they had the. You know how when you're when you're when you're young, you're you're, you, you're beginning to get concerned about your your personal appearance, and I couldn't find anyone who knew how to cut black hair. You know, so they they treated my head and hair as if I was a sort of sheep to be sheep sheared and this of course had a disastrous effect on my on my self-image uh, as a as a teenager so I remember uh, going into London catching the train to Euston and I'll never forget this catching the number 18 bus to Harlesden where I was able to find a black barber and that really transformed my my life, my <laughs> self-image. And I laugh because you know I ended up living in Halston. I ended up being the MP for Halston. But I, I'll never, ever forget that my first ride of the number 18 bus to get my hair cut. 
So it was different. And, it, and you know, it's, it's very, very hard to uh, get over just what a, I mean, Britain then was in many ways another country. I mean, now you can get yams, plantain, cassava, all these things. You can get them uh, in Tesco's or in Sainsbury's or in Waitrose or in Asda, wherever you are, anywhere in the country. Uh, in those days, one of the biggest shocks uh, for me coming coming from uh, from Africa at, at that time was all the sort of fruit and vegetables that I that I'd grown up with, avocado, pears, things like that. You just couldn't get, you know, it was it was a very, very different. And you didn't see black people on TV. You, you didn't hear black people on the road. Whenever a black person came on the on the telly, you know, my mum would call me. You know, we would all rush in to have a look. Very it's really interesting what you say there, but because obviously we'll and we'll talk about, you know, education and the healthcare system and uh, and all of that. But actually, in terms of your sort of daily life experience the food that you eat and your ability to get your hair cut has a much greater impact on you and your 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 life experience doesn't it it does and one of the um one of the, the first campaigns actually i i got in i got involved in as as uh, a young activist uh, and and politician was to address the needs of the windrush generation uh, in in care homes and in hospital and other and other settings, uh, because in the 1970s and 80s, uh, this was a very very big issue for people who are now beginning they're beginning to get to get old they're beginning to need to need care, and there were issues about how social service services how the health service catered uh, 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 for them, uh, and. We're we're a bit better at that now than we used to be, but still, nevertheless, it, it's it's an issue. How you deal with Alzheimer's uh, in a Afro Caribbean or Asian or Asian population, when we know that one of the things that helps with Alzheimer's is creating familiar settings and familiar environments. And I know there was a very good exhibit at the Grange Hill. Uh, 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 the Grange Park uh, Museum, local museum in Brent, built, developed with, with age concern, where they created a reminiscence room that was just like a Caribbean living room uh, in uh, Britain or in the Caribbean in the 1950s and 60s, you know, with, with doilies, ducks on the wall, <laughs> Venetian glass um, or, or, ornaments, the Grundig record player, um, copies of West Indian World on the table. And it was remarkable the way people who had Alzheimer's, when they were in that room, were helped uh, uh, recover, which is, is one reason why actually museums and the cultural industries are just so important to our mental well-being, which is, of course, an issue for these times, uh, very much so in, in COVID, when so much of the cultural sector sector is under huge museum sector is under huge pressure yeah i've got a thing i remember seeing there was a tv show which did a similar thing took people older people and those least susceptible if not suffering from dementia and they sort of lived in a whole house which you know exactly the same had, had been recreated in that way it made such a difference 
to them, and something we probably all um, all uh, understand and appreciate. So then you entered, like, like you said, you you were lawyer first, then you entered politics first as a councillor and then an MP. Uh, you were one of the first four black British MPs alongside Bernie Grant, Diane Abbott and Keith Vaz. What was it like arriving in Parliament as a black MP in 1987? I mean, given that Parliament's still pretty weird now uh, for, a, for, for an outsider to arrive in. Well, I mean, we looked different. We were different. There were all sorts of... I mean, I was very fortunate. I mean, I had a very positive experience. Um, uh, people were in the main uh, welcoming um, but, you know, we we stood out and there has always been a battle uh, to be recognized in a way that doesn't define you by the color of your skin. You know, I've always said I want to be judged by the content of my character, not by the color of my skin. I, 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 I'm an MP or was an MP who is black, not a black MP. Do you follow me? So yeah, no, absolutely. It, it, it yeah, yeah. Was, it was very important for me that I should be seen as representing all my constituents, black, white, Asian, Irish, whatever their origin. While the tendency always for the system is to put you in that sort of box. And, and that, I think, is a dangerous thing, uh, you know, to, just to be seen as a woman, a black, uh, to be defined by your, your gender, your race, your sexual orientation, or, what, or, your, or where you come from by the sound of your voice. I mean, that's a very, that's a very dangerous thing. And you had and constantly to, to sort of to fight against, against that, being pigeonholed. And that was why, because you didn't join what was called the Parliamentary Black Caucus, which, 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 which was the group of, you know, Diana Bent and Bernie Grant and people like that. And that's, is that why you didn't join that? <laughs> Actually, yes, it is. Uh, I felt it. I felt that it was absolutely vital that we put those issues that concern the black community onto the agenda. But I felt that it was divisive to do that in a way that said to our white colleagues, well, you know, you can't come to that meeting. This is not this is not for you. And, or this is or this is uh, or that we should be seen as pushing a, as it were, a specific racial uh, agenda based on a form of of identity politics. You know, I believe in 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 ideology. I believe in having a, a a vision, and that vision and that ideology is informed, of course, uh, by your uh, by by your culture, by your heritage. But that isn't what defines you. So I I felt that that would be a, a dead end, and indeed it proved to be so, and it didn't endure. And it doesn't. It, it, it didn't. It didn't last, and it doesn't exist now. Which is not to say that we don't come together to discuss issues that are of particular concern to the black community. Of course, we have to do that. I mean, I, I give you a, a, a classic example when uh, Diane and I have worked together uh, over the years, and I worked with with Bernie on sickle cell anemia. You know, that's something that specifically impacts. Uh, on people of African and Caribbean uh, 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 origin. Uh, and it, it, it was important to get that recognized within the health service. And so that was something obviously where we, where we worked together. We worked together on a, whole, on, a whole, on a whole range of issues. But, you know, we don't necessarily share the same politics. <laughs> we met, we met, we met at that time <laughs> of August, 
and we are members of the same party, but you know, we, we have different approaches within parties. There are different approaches within, within parties. Don't forget then, we were only four. Now they're what, 65 um, black uh, Asian ethnic minority uh, MPs across the party uh, uh, spectrum. In those days, that was not, that wasn't the case. Uh, yeah, I and, think we've all learned in recent um, years that the, the um, Labour Party is quite a broad church. Yeah, the Labour Party, all, all parties are broad <laughs> all churches. All parties, that's true, yeah, that's, all parties. I mean, that's their strength, because, you know, you if if they weren't, they would not be able to develop agendas that were capable of attracting support from people who are not affiliated with any particular party, who... who so you know you need to be to be a broad church uh, to be to be an effective party in my view. Now, that, uh, ten, so ten years after you become an MP, uh, Tony Blair wins the the landslide victory in nineteen ninety seven. You become a junior minister, and then, in fact, twenty two years ago today, when I was looking this up, um, but, <laughs> Tony Blair had quite a lot of reshuffles. They came around quite often. Uh, but twenty two years ago today, you became a minister of state at the Home Office. And then in uh, May 2002, you became the first black cabinet minister as chief secretary to the Treasury. And also there was a lot of reporting and focus on that at the time. And you again made the point which you were just making that um, you didn't want to be judged by the colour of your skin. You said you're working for a world in which people are not judged by their colour, by the content of their character. I mean, it's, well, that's what now, 18 years ago. Do you think we've made progress on that front? I think we've made some progress. And I think we should celebrate that fact. But I still think that they are deep-rooted patterns of uh, disadvantage uh, and discrimination in in our society. I mean, there are issues around which are, which are systemic and institutionalized. I mean, black people are four times more likely to die from COVID uh, than than white people. If you're a black youngster, you're you're more likely to be stopped and searched. Black women are five times more likely to die in pregnancy. Black Caribbean children are three times more likely to be excluded from schools. I mean, there's a there's a whole range of statistics that the race diversity audit brings out uh, around uh, the experience of being black uh, uh, in in Britain today, which does give one cause 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 for concern. I mean, the reality is that if you are a black person with a degree, exactly the same degree as your white counterpart, you are going to have to go through many more interviews to get, the, to get a job. The fact of the matter is you're more likely to be unemployed. You're more likely to be made, to be made redundant. I mean, these, these, this is the reality. So we have how a does way that make to you go. feel, Paul? When you, when you talk about those, uh, when you talk about those statistics, because yeah. every one of them, in and of itself, is is shocking, and you just have to sort of remind yourself these are these are uh, people, you know, behind every statistic, you know, it's based on real people's lives. How does that make you feel that in two, uh, 2020, that that is still the case? The fact that the the very fact of the colour of your skin makes it harder to get a job. You'll be treated less well by uh, most branches of the state. And how how does that make you feel? It makes me feel angry. Of course, it makes me feel hurt, but it also makes me feel that we've got to just redouble our efforts to do something about it, and that it's the responsibility of all of us, you know, whatever the colour of our skin, uh, I would argue whatever political party we're in, 
we want to build a successful and inclusive society that makes the most of everyone's talents, uh, that recognizes and respects a, a, shared, a shared humanity. But that requires that we go beyond rhetoric, Matt. I mean, I guess I don't know about, about, about you, but you know, it, my heart sinks when I hear of yet another review. I mean, you know, <laughs> we don't need any more reviews. There have been countless reviews by numerous governments. Uh, we know what we need to do. And I just think we need to, we need to get on with it. So the older I get, I don't get um, any sort of, uh, I, I don't get any more content, frankly. I get in some ways even more exasperated when I see successive generations uh, you know, making the same mistakes and you know, believing that a review will solve anything. No, the evidence is there. We know what we need to do. Let's, let's get on with it. I mean, I, let me give you a classic, classic example. You know, it, it's, I'm really glad at the way Times Radio is sort of, has taken up this issue of, 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 and is giving profile to Black History Month. But in a way, you know, we ought not to have to have Black History Month in the sense that we ought to be teaching the history of the, of the British Isles in a way that recognizes that there have been black people on the in these islands since since the Romans, you know they were they were they were black centurions. We know this because we have found evidence uh, of it. Their their bodies, their artifacts. They were black centurions manning Hadrian's Wall. <laughs> we know uh, that uh, that there were black people in Elizabethan. England proportionately um, it, 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 on the par with the numbers of black people in greater, in greater London today. We know, for instance, that the first um, leader of the Farmer Symphony Orchestra in the West Country was a black guy, originally a slave. And this is, we're talking now uh, about the 19th century, originally uh, picked up uh, as a slave by Admiral uh, Rodney brought back uh, to Falmouth. He was a fiddler. He was free in Britain, of course. Uh, and he led the Falmouth Symphony Orchestra. So, you know, there were black people involved in the Cato Street conspiracy. So why don't we teach it? Why, why yeah, isn't absolutely. it a part of the national curriculum? It should be. And like you said, th th these aren't boring stories. I mean, we, I, we talked about this on, on the programme before, but, you know, I remember spending what seemed like months talking about various agricultural machines and who, who invented them, which actually is incredibly boring compared to um, the, 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 the Brit Britain, British black history. It's fascinating stories full of, you know, fascinating people who, who led good or bad lives. But, uh, you know, it's, 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 it should be, you know, yeah, I completely agree with you. They're, they're fascinating stories that should be told. Uh, just because I'm sort of slightly conscious of the time, I wanted to ask you about yep. um, Tony Saul, who's been appointed by the Prime Minister to lead, as you said, another government inquiry into uh, ethnic disparities in Britain. He wrote a piece for The Times yesterday uh, in which he said that he thought the, the, the term BAME, B-A-M-E, uh, um, black and minority uh, ethnic, he said it was an increasingly irrelevant term because of the differences in attainment between the ethnic groups. And I just wonder what you th thought about this. There's been a lot of discussion about, because I suppose on the one hand, people, you know, people are using these, these terms uh, with the best of intentions because they're trying to, to talk about how to help groups which need help. But I, I wonder what you feel about the term BAME or BME. Uh, it, it's not one I... 
I grew up with, Matt, and it's not one I'm particularly sold on. It's, it's a shorthand, um, but I think it's a shorthand that may well have uh, outlived its usefulness uh, for uh, the reasons that Tony Sewell uh, was saying. I mean, look, I mean, I, I grew up um, talking about black people, um, talking, talking about black and Asian people, uh, ethnic minority people, by all means, um, uh, but let's recognize uh, that there are uh, differences. Certainly, if, if, if you look at the experience uh, of, of race and racial disadvantage, um, the term BAME doesn't actually pick up all those things. But, you know, what I do think we've got to avoid, Matt, is people constantly sort of walking on, 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 on you know, being terrified of saying the wrong thing in terms of how, of how you how you describe people. Do you know what I mean? Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I don't want to add yet another burden. <laughs> that, well, should I use the term BAME? Should I use the term black? I mean, you know, let's not get too hung up on the on the terminology. The fact is that whether you are black, Asian, or or, or any person person of color. Racism is a reality. It takes different forms, but it is it is a reality. Uh, and I don't want how you describe a particular individual to be yet another reason for not addressing the underlying problem. Yeah, no, I can I can but, uh, completely appreciate that. I wanted to just, um, I suppose, uh, because you are a Labour peer, you're a Labour MP, a Labour cabinet is a Labour yeah. peer, I suppose I should ask you about uh, the, the, the state of the Labour Party. We think we might get the um, uh, report from the uh, Equalities and Human Rights Commission this week into whether or not the Labour Party is institutionally racist for its, its treatment of uh, Jewish members and uh, dealing with anti-Semitism. Uh, what sort of state do you think the Labour Party is currently in right now? Uh, I think it's fast improving. Uh, I think it's been through a rough period. Uh, I think it's coming out of that. I think uh, we have a good leader, a good front bench, front bench team, uh, and we are readying, our, readying ourselves for the responsibilities uh, of, uh, uh, of government. But, you know, Matt, one of the things I swore I would, I, I'm, I'm now of a certain age, you know, I've done my bit. <laughs> and one, of the, one of the things that used to exasperate me uh, when I was a young up-and-coming politician many years ago, was all those old members of the party who, who, from the sidelines, were only too busy and happy, uh, only too happy to be busy giving me advice. Do you know what I mean? So I was absolutely determined that when I grew to a certain age, I wouldn't be a boring old fart commenting from the sidelines. <laughs> so, <laughs> I am not about to become one now. Um, but I do think that it's absolutely vital uh, that all parties uh, tackle the issue of racism that exists within them. No party uh, is immune uh, from, from racism. No party has a monopoly of virtue when it comes to race. Uh, that's, been, that's been my experience uh, uh, over the years. And the Labour Party is no exception. And uh, the, the, the whole, the whole uh, way in which, frankly, Jewish members of the party uh, were treated was an absolute disgrace uh, and it should never have happened. Uh, and Keir Starmer was right to apologise 
spirit and um, that uh, that is that's being uh, set um that whole process is is now a process is underway that is addressing addressing those those issues but no party has a monopoly of virtue when it comes to race I mean, i'll give you a classic example from from history i mean i was i was very much involved as a legal advisor to the scrap sus campaign which was started up um, by a group of black women in lewisham who saw the way that the sus laws under the vagrancy act was being used to criminalize a whole generation uh, of uh, of black youth uh, and those uh, women got together and they said enough is enough we've got to change the law and uh, they started this campaign and it's a campaign that grew um, to involve uh, the churches the trade unions the confederation of, Br of british industry uh, a whole cross-section uh, of uh, of of society but you know a Labour government was in power at the time. We urged them to change the law. They didn't. And it was a Conservative politician, a guy uh, old now, but uh, a great man in my view, called Sir John Wheeler, who headed up the then Home Affairs uh, Select, Select Committee. It was a Conservative uh, uh, politician who uh, took up this cause uh, and uh, it was Margaret Thatcher's government that abolished the sus laws. So, you know, it, it, it's, it, you can't see the issue of combating racism as the preserve of any one political party. All parties, all peoples have to, have to resolve to address this issue. Uh, and I hope we will see that uh, uh, now and, and in the years, years to come. There's no excuse not to frankly. Uh, and we have we have a, a diverse government with uh, people from the black and Asian community in the Conservative Party holding important and responsible positions. Uh, we have a diverse parliament. We have a diverse society. Uh, and we must address this this running saw uh, uh, in our in, in, in our society. That is that is racism. So that was Paul Botang speaking to me here on the Red Box podcast. Up next, we'll hear from uh, Chris Curtis and Deborah Madison as they unpick the polls. If you enjoy listening to Times journalists and commentators here on the podcast, well, you can now subscribe to The Times. Don't miss our flash sale. Subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times with 50% off for six months. But the sale ends this Friday, the 30th of October at five o'clock. Search thetimes.co.uk forward slash times red box. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. 
Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. But now we've not done this uh, for a while. It's time for Picking Polls Apart. Uh, we're joined by our two favourite pollsters, Chris Curtis from YouGov. Morning, Chris. Good morning, Matt. And Deborah Madison from Britain Thinks. Morning, Deborah. Good morning. So uh, let's pick through the uh, what the latest polls are showing. First of all, Chris, um, YouGov have got some new approval ratings. So what are people currently saying about Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer and, uh, and the government more generally? So um, generally what we're seeing is a very, very slow continuation of the trend we've seen over the course of the year, which is in particular the government and in particular the prime minister getting less and less popular with the public. So in our latest numbers, nearly six in 10 members of the public think that Boris Johnson is doing bad at his job, just, just around the third think that he's doing well. But also we started to see really, as the Labour Party started to politicise their attacks on the government, drop off on Keir Starmer's numbers as well. So in our latest figures, um, 31% think he's doing badly. So he's still a lot more lot more popular than the Prime Minister. But but his negative numbers are going up. And that's mainly Conservative voters changing their mind as he's becoming more and more political in his, in his attacks on the government. Uh, one of the things that I noticed as well, because obviously there's, there's lots of different ways of measuring this, is, you know, are they doing a good job, <clears throat> favourability, do you trust them? One of the things that struck me rootling around in the YouGov uh, numbers was this this sort of gap between uh, leaders and their parties. So on the favourability, mm. I do feel favourable to um, uh, the party or the person. On the Tories, it's pretty close. So the Conservative Party are on minus 24, so that's the favourable uh, minus the unfavourable. Boris Johnson's on minus 19, which is sort of in line. Whereas for Labour, Labour's still on minus 11, but Keir Starmer's on plus five. So that, what does that tell us about how, uh, how politics is playing out, that people still feel more favourable to Keir Starmer personally than they do the mm. Labour Party more generally? I, I think the first thing to note is that the gap on both of those is closing. So you said that the gap with the Conservatives and Boris Johnson has almost closed completely now. But there was a really wide gap on that, that earlier in the year. And there was an even wider gap uh, on Keir Starmer and Labour Party than there currently is. And that has started to shrink. But it's definitely true that it still, it still exists. Um, and there, there, there's two reasons for that. Firstly, sort of on Labour's right, you do have some Conservatives who still have a, a fairly good view of Keir Starmer. They think he's the kind of man who could be Prime Minister. But at this stage, they're, you know, still not a particular fan of the Labour Party and Keir Starmer hasn't translated that over yet. But then there's also a lot of people sort of more from the Remainy left as well, Green voters, Lib Dem voters, etc., who quite like Keir Starmer, but they're they're not they're not Labour Party voters. They may maybe think Keir Starmer would be the best prime minister, definitely better than Boris Johnson, but they're Lib Dems or they're Green voters, they're not going to be supporting the Labour Party. So that's the reason we're seeing that 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 big gap on that side. Okay, let's bring Deborah in. Deborah, um, with Britain Thinks, you do lots of focus groups and, and uh, you get voters to fill in diaries about what they're thinking. So what, what are mm. people currently thinking about the main, the main party leaders? So, I mean, it absolutely echoes what we're hearing in the polls. Um, they are 
very, it's kind of a plague on all your houses in some ways, but particularly they are fed up and disillusioned with, with Boris Johnson. And there's, there's a sense that's coming through. I've just been looking at some data. I've literally just got in this morning from our coronavirus diaries. Um, there's a sense of him trying to please everybody and ending up pleasing nobody. So one person says they're doing a bit of a dance in and out, back and forth. They're tiptoeing around, trying to please everybody, need to be more drastic, need to have a clearer sense of, of what they believe in and what they stand for. And, you know, one of the things we love to do is, you know, in focus groups is, you know, if this politician were an animal, what kind of animal would they be? Well, Boris Johnson is a sheep. And that is exactly that point. There's this sense of him scurrying around the field in different directions, you know, chasing this group of voters, chasing that group of MPs, but actually in the end, leaving everybody dissatisfied. And that, I think, is, is, is his challenge and that's his problem. And how does that um, affect, <laughs> I think it's interesting that they think he's a sheep. Um, at what point does this sort of, because obviously we're a long, people will be saying that we're a long way from an election right now. Uh, so how, at what point does that sort of start to crystallise in people's minds and affect the way they vote? Is there sort of no such thing as a, you know, you only get one chance, you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. So are those impressions that people are forming now likely to have a longer term impact on voting? Yes, I think that they are. I mean, what we know is that uh, for any new leader, and that's true of a prime minister or leader of the opposition, three months in tends to be as good as it gets. And the best you can then hope for is that you will maintain whatever high level you manage to achieve at that point. Now, obviously, coronavirus has created a, an unusual set of circumstances. And I think people are still quite eager to cut Boris Johnson some slack for that, you know, to say, look, this is a very difficult situation. We've never been here before. He's doing his best. A lot of people have said to me, I've gone back to some of the Red Wall people I interviewed, um, you know, back at the beginning of the year, and they're saying, gosh, I'm just glad it's not me having to take these terrible and difficult decisions. But at the same time, you know, views are beginning to settle uh, around Boris Johnson not having a clear sense of direction. And that, I think, is his problem. And of course, Keir Starmer faces a similar challenge, that views are beginning to settle for him. And I think you just identified then the particular challenge he's got of, even though he is doing quite well, his party is still not. And he's got to persuade voters that he can take his party with him. Uh, and of course, he's got some particular, you know, issues coming up this week with the ERC, ERHC report on anti-Semitism and other things that might send voters the message that the party is not yet behind their leader, even if he's doing a bit better. So, Chris, um, I've written, I've made a foray back into the Times Red Box this morning to write up this polling on uh, how people view on the specific question of uh, who they trust uh, to take the right decisions on coronavirus. And you've been asking this question not just for politicians, um, uh, but also for uh, the scientists, Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance. So who, who do people trust to make the right decisions? Yeah, I mean, the main point of the data is that if, if Michael Gove was right to say that Britain doesn't trust experts anymore, my God, do we not trust politicians? So, <laughs> you know, if we look at Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance, the two um, medical and science experts that we were testing, there are, there are there is a significant chunk of the population that haven't heard of them. But of those that have, you know, the amount of people who have confidence in what they say is usually about twice the number of people who don't have confidence in what they say. You compare that to, for example, the prime minister, um, it, th 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 that maths flips. So twice as many people don't have confidence in what Boris Johnson says than have confidence in what he says. So, um, yes, yeah, so, so, so the experts are generally um, the most trusted people 
to talk about when we hear about coronavirus, and that's held fairly consistent over the course of this crisis. So the number of people who have heard of him, uh, heard of uh, Chris Whitty and Patrick Bounce has gone up. There are a few people that have lost confidence in them, but broadly speaking, their numbers have held up very well over the past six months. Yeah, in contrast, like you said, Boris Johnson has, has tumbled uh, quite markedly. But I mean, uh, Matt Hancock's uh, poll ratings have been uh, tanking. Uh, you know, disappear. The people who trust him have been disappearing so quickly. We've only seen that Dido Harding's been put in charge of keeping uh, track and trace on them. Um, what What does that mean then, in terms of the politics? If I uh, ask you this, uh, Deborah, if people start losing faith in the health secretary in a health crisis. You, you, know, you were a uh, pollster for Gordon Brown when he was in Downing Street. Do you start saying, OK, we're going to stop using Matt Hancock to try and communicate those messages and try and find other people to do that? Yes, and by the way, I wouldn't say they've started losing faith. I don't think that there has ever been uh, very much faith in Matt Hancock. I don't think that his his <laughs> poll ratings have ever been very strong. Uh, obviously, that you know, Boris Johnson's have got worse. Um, it remains to be seen with other key players like Rishi Sunak what's going to happen with their ratings. And and I agree with everything Chris has said, and this this comes very clearly through our work as well. Is that you know the constant actually is the continued respect for the, the health experts who are seen to be playing a straight bat here. And I think the, the other thing I would add, and you know, I think whenever we talk, we update on this, we've seen people becoming more and more worried about the economy. That is clearly happening. But in the end, if you make it a binary choice, people on the whole are still more worried about health and prioritising that more highly. And that has also been something of a constant, you know, the gap is narrowing, there's no question of that, but at the same time, people are still prioritising health. So it's, so it's a real problem. So, yes, what are the politics? Well, I mean, they must be looking quite carefully um, at, at Hancock, uh, but it's difficult because, um, you know, who, who would he be replaced with? <laughs> and what happens if he is set out into the cold as well? Uh, let's talk as well about um, uh, the north-south divide, which seems to have emerged as a as a, a big political issue recently. I mean, not least the the, the Battle of Manchester, as it became uh, viewed as last week, with Andy Burnham pitched against uh, Boris Johnson. Today, we've got the Northern Research Group being formed, Northern MPs pitching themselves against Downing Street. How how does that uh, materialise in the polling, Chris? So, I mean, we, we usually what what you see happen to be honest, is, and we're, and we're seeing it so far in this parliament, is that things sort of move fairly universally across the board. So yes, it is the case that Labour Party has increased their vote share quite substantially um, since, the, since the general election. The Conservatives have lost a little bit, but that has tended to happen actually fairly universally across the country. So Labour is gaining about as many votes in the South as it is in the North, etc. So, so far, we haven't seen this yet. We, we, we talk a lot about how's Labour going to rebuild themselves in the Red Bull. They've gone up a bit in the Red Bull, but only that they're not regaining all of those votes they lost last time round. They're actually gaining a few of them fairly proportionally to what they're gaining in many of those other seats across the South, across London and, and the voters voters down there that they hadn't already won. So there hasn't been this massive rush back to the Labour Party across the North that the Labour Party might be hoping for, although there is a, a small and noticeable recovery there. Is that because, Deborah, it wasn't, you know, in most people's minds, uh, it wasn't that long ago we had an election and they, ha they haven't yet got buyer's remorse from sw switching to the Tories? 
Yeah, no, not only have they not got buyer's remorse, but they are, you know, if, if you voted Tory for the first time in your whole life, and, you know, you'd always been a Labour voter, your parents have been Labour voters, your grandparents have been Labour voters, you've got quite a, a lot resting on that turning out to be a, a good decision to have taken. Um, so in that sense, you know, the Tories have got some time on their side. But, but to that specific point about, you know, Andy Burnham and that row, I actually went back to some of the people that I'd interviewed at the beginning of the year year to see what they made of that. And I think that they, you know, I think this is playing out quite badly at a local level in some instances for the government. There was a sense of, of you know, Andy Burnham knows the area. He's fighting for the area. Don't forget, there is this huge resentment, this really strong sense of it's not just a north-south divide, but it's kind of London versus us. You know, London taking the resource that we've been starved of and deprived of. And a feeling that Andy Burnham is fighting London, um, fighting his corner and knows his turf very well, that the government have paid lip service to, uh, you know, to sort of having kind of de regional devolution and then are prepared to sort of ride roughshod over it when push comes to shove. So... I got quite a lot of resentment and my feeling is that, and I think we see this in the polling too, both nationally and at a more local level, that uh, you know, there's quite a lot of support for what Andy Burnham was doing. Um, I think this has been a very difficult battle for the, for, for the, for the government. And generally, I mean, it's fair to say most people don't know, haven't necessarily heard of Andy Burnham before, uh, despite his, his long Westminster career. And generally, yes. new people coming along and socking it to the government is seen as, you know, Nick Clegg will tell you what happens when you, you come from comparative obscurity and, uh, and, and gain a profile from doing that. You, you become pop quite popular in the short term, I suppose. Um, what yeah. about uh, the big issue of the day, the real leader of the opposition right now, Marcus Rashford? How are people noticing this story? Are they, is it, is it feeding into the politics, Chris? What do people think about this idea of free school meals during the school holiday? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's perhaps one of the least surprising things that not letting kids go hungry is, is popular with the public. So when you do ask the question about free school meals, the majority of the public say, yes, of course, you should, you should let them uh, let, let, let kids have these not during term times as well. I think the number's about about 54 percent support, about a third oppose. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but but that's not surprising. I think the bigger question is what kind of impact this is going to have on the popularity of the government. You know, when we start to see opinion polls coming out this week and after the story's really landed. Now, I don't know yet, I don't want to preempt yet, but if I if I were to make a prediction, I'd say that this is going to potentially be really quite dramatic. And we might start to see some really large shifts in the polls off the back of this. Obviously, it's early on in the parliament, there's a long way to go, these kind of stories come and they go. But actually, I think that that could end up being it being quite dramatic because it's one of those things that has really cut through with the public. I'm sure Deborah will, will, will tell us that it's cut through in her focus groups. Lots of non-political people uh, who, are the, who are the kind of people that matter in elections. They're talking about it, um, posting about it on Facebook. You've got Marcus Rashford involved. And it's one of those really emotive things that cuts against the brand image of the Conservative Party and cuts against those kind of things that, that Boris Johnson has been, been trying to do to make the Conservative Party seem like a nicer party. Uh, since he took over just over a year ago. Is that what you're hearing in your focus groups as well, Deborah? It's, you know, I mean, as Chris has said, I mean, who would choose, you know, uh, hungry kids as the hill they wanted to die on? It seems very odd. And certainly in our in our coronavirus diaries, when we asked people what were the news stories that had struck them over the last few days, by a mile, this was the winner. There's one caveat, though, to all of this, and that is that I, I think, and Chris will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think looking at the data I've seen, I'm seeing that working class um, 
respondents in polls are less likely to be critical of the government. And I just wonder if we might see a bit of a differential here. You know, again and again, I've heard people in focus groups, particularly in those red wall seats, saying that, you know, they, don't, they aren't eligible for anything and feeling a certain amount of resentment towards welfare recipients. And I just wonder if it might play out differentially. So across the board, you know, this is a bad thing for the government, but I wonder if there might be pockets where, uh, where it, it matters yeah. less or it plays out differently. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times Radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box too. Make sure you subscribe and review the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, from me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Anabotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.